Our scripture passage this morning, if you want to read along, is from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, if you've been here during our series on the prophet Jeremiah, you've heard quite a bit of bad news, passages expressing God's anger and judgment. You'll be glad to know that in chapter 30, finally things start to turn a corner. From that point on, the messages God delivers through Jeremiah speak of healing and restoration, flourishing and blessing. Though they are far from home, the exiles are never far from God, uh, from his love. And now he reveals plans to bring them home and bless them beyond their wildest hopes. So listen to one of those visions of restoration and renewal from Jeremiah 31. I'll be reading verses 10 through 14 and then skipping to verses 31 through 34. Uh, You might close your eyes and imagine God uh, talking about your own life. Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance And my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Now jumping to 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, And I will remember their sins no more. This is the word of God. So, sometimes it isn't until much later that you realize that you have misjudged a situation. Sometimes it isn't until much later that you realize that you've misjudged a person. That is what Scotty and Benny discovered in the video clip that we're about to watch. It is from the 1992 film, The Sandlot. Now, the movie is about a group of 10-year-old boys who gather daily in a local sandlot to play baseball. And they have a great time, but they keep hitting their baseballs over the fence. And the problem is that they don't dare retrieve those baseballs because they are thoroughly terrified of the dog in the junkie yard next door, but they are even more terrified 
of the menacing, mysterious recluse who lives in that house, Mr. Myrtle, played quite menacingly by James Earl Jones in the film. Until, that is, the day that events force them to encounter Mr. Myrtle face to face. You see, eventually they run out of baseballs. And so, Scotty decides to swipe a baseball from his stepdad's trophy case. Except this particular baseball happens to be signed by Babe Ruth. And, sure enough, that baseball goes over the fence, forcing the boys to finally work up the courage to go and knock on the door and encounter that menacing neighbor face to face. Sometimes it isn't until much later that you realize that you've misjudged a person. See, man, that's why you can't go over there. Nobody ever has, nobody ever will. One kid did, but nobody ever seen him again. That ain't true. Yeah, it is. He got eaten. Nuh-uh. No. None of that's true. You guys are just making this up to scare me. Oh, yeah. We hit a baseball into your yard. We tried to get it back. <laughs> Thanks for bringing him home. Come on in. We'll talk about this baseball. trade you. That's really nice of you, but that ball really is signed by Babe Ruth. So is this one, with the rest of the 1927 Yankees. Oh, man. Reverse Row. Lou Gehrig. Babe Ruth. So, I wanted to start with this clip, because I think something similar, although on a far grander scale, happens through the pages of the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. As you walk with the prophet through the story of God's judgment on his people and the exile in Babylon, for two-thirds of the 51 chapters of the book of Jeremiah, the people of Judah, and by extension we readers as we look over their shoulders, are pretty sure we understand the situation, pretty sure we understand the character of this God that they serve. For those first 29 chapters, it seems pretty clear that Yahweh, Israel's God, is a menacing, terrifying, mysterious force who is bent on their permanent destruction. A God who is done with his people, 
who has tossed them aside forever, who in a furious rage has handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, sold them into exile where they will perish forever as a people. And because we readers, having read these 29 chapters so far, are pretty sure we understand the character of God, we're also pretty sure we understand what sort of book Jeremiah left us. It is a dystopia. It is a tragic, post-apocalyptic nightmare of failure and suffering of the dark, irreversible consequences of disobedience to God. But then, you turn the page from chapter 29 to chapter 30. And everything that we thought we knew turns upside down and inside out. All of the assumptions that we'd made about God's character and about God's motives are thrown into question. And it begins to dawn on us that we might not have understood at all who God has been all along. And that this book whose main theme we had assumed was all about judgment, is in fact a book about something altogether different. Grace. Now, if you've been here Sunday mornings the last eight weeks, you know that there's all sorts of evidence for that initial assumption, right? That God is simply finished with his chosen people. That God's intentions for them at this point is every bit as dark and foreboding as those kids imagine Mr. Myrtle's intentions were for them. Because for 29 chapters, simply put, God is angry. And angry for some rather valid reasons. His chosen people have been worshiping Canaanite gods on the side. In their greed and their self-absorption, they have ignored the poor. They have ignored refugees. They have been piling up possessions without a care for the powerless in their midst. By any objective measure, the special covenant relationship between God and this particular people made with Abraham, confirmed with David, that they would be blessed to be a blessing to the whole world. That covenant is in tatters. The covenant has been torn to shreds. It is null and void. The people have callously and persistently defied their side of the bargain. They have defied God. They have defied God's commandments. They have defied God's prophets. God may have at one point chosen them, but now they have chosen to annul their covenant with Him. There is no other reasonable conclusion but that they are by their own willful renunciation no longer God's people at least that is what you would conclude from the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah's book but then you turn the page Bible scholars have a phrase, a title for Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31. They call it the book of consolation. Partly because in the first few verses of chapter 30, the chapter before the one that Mike just read, God commands Jeremiah to write a new book. And he puts his prophecies down in a book. 
But the other reason is because at this point in Jeremiah's prophecy, it's as if the music suddenly changes from a minor key to a major key. From suffering and wrath and judgment to healing and restoration and newness and tenderness. But given what we have read for 29 chapters, it's a rather jarring and unexpected U-turn. God's people have flagrantly rejected God's covenant. And yet, the messages that God commands Jeremiah to deliver from this point forward are messages that console, that comfort, that declare God's reversal and God's redemption. But do you see what this means? Like those boys misunderstood Mr. Myrtle, we misunderstood God all along. Although Israel has chosen to break its covenant with God, God has chosen to keep it nevertheless. Doing this when he has no compelling reason to do so. I am the one who scattered my people, God declares in verse 10, and I will gather them. In spite of how they treated me, I will still be their tender shepherd. They only thought it was vindictiveness and rage that motivated me. But at every step, it has been love. And it will continue to be so. What Jeremiah is announcing to the Judean exiles is an abiding truth about God that people forget again and again and again. That even when we fail God, God does not fail us. He keeps covenant with us even when we don't keep covenant with Him. Which is a pretty important piece of data for every person sitting in this room right now. Because while I may not know the details, I am certain that as you look back on the story of your life, like me, you Recall with real pain various moments when you simply failed to be the person God intended you to be. When you hurt somebody that you love, someone in your marriage or in your family or in a friendship. When your own arrogance or greed or insecurity or fear drove you to do that stupid act that defied God's intention for your life, that broke the covenant that you made with God, because that's all of us. Which is why I want to be sure this morning that you recognize and understand that right here in the middle of the Old Testament of all places the characteristic grace of the God we serve. The good news. The gospel right there in the Old Testament. That even when we fail God, God does not fail us. That God keeps covenant with us even when we don't keep covenant with Him. You see, grace has been part of the DNA of God all along because it's simply who God is. 
Here in this passage, using Jeremiah as his messenger, here in Jeremiah's book of consolation, God reveals his heart of grace to those Judean exiles in Babylon. And he does it on two levels at the same time. These words that God tells Jeremiah to speak function simultaneously on two chronological horizons. There is the near horizon, the near term, in which these words point to an event mere decades ahead of them at that point. It's an event that will significantly affect the experience of one particular people at one moment in history. At the same time, though, these words invoke the far horizon, centuries ahead. The images that Jeremiah portrays begin to whet the appetite of God's people for something that God is up to that is so much larger, an event so much more global and cosmic, an event that will affect every person who will ever walk the earth. In the near horizon, Jeremiah describes a moment, a historical event that at that point in the prophecy lies just over 40 years in the future. The Lord will deliver Jacob, Jeremiah says. Remember, Jacob is the other name for Israel. The Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. And this word redeem is a beautiful Hebrew verb that the prophets love. It, uh, it means to buy back a slave from captivity, to pay a ransom and to free a person. And here in Jeremiah's words, it first refers to the moment in 538 B.C., when God will, in fact, free all those exiles that we talked about last week from their captivity in Babylon, and they will come home and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. Zion, of course, is back home. And to imagine it, Jeremiah asks his readers to imagine a giant party, this exuberant homecoming party on that day the exiles return to Judah. There will be a feast, there will be wine flowing, there'll be bread and olive oil, old and young, male and female will break out in spontaneous, joyful dancing. I will turn their mourning into dancing, says God. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And I want to linger a moment on this near historical horizon this near horizon event, because it was a remarkable promise. Out of the utter defeat and despair of exile, God will bring his people home. And as I said, this will actually take place 40 years later, 538 B.C., when Cyrus, king of Persia, will defeat Babylon and will personally sponsor the Judean exiles to return to their homeland. With the result that... Unlike nearly every other ancient Near Eastern people whom Babylon absorbed, the Judeans will survive as a people, returning to their land of promise and eventually recreating the culture that will become what we know as Judaism. And if that was all that Jeremiah's words pointed to, it would be beautiful. It would be an inspiring ending to a dramatic story. 
It would show that God, the covenant keeper, kept covenant with his broken people and he brought them home to the land that he had given them centuries earlier. But if, a moment ago, as Mike read this passage from Jeremiah, if you had some stirring, if you had some hunch that these words might be pointing to something even bigger, even more exciting and cosmic than that particular moment in 538 B.C., I say, go with that hunch. Because... Followers of Jesus have long heard, in Jeremiah's word, a second parallel level of meaning, a parallel description of an event even more significant on the far horizon, centuries in the future. That when God says, I will redeem, the redemption will ultimately be even more liberating than ransom from the literal historic exile in Babylon. When an Old Testament prophet says, the days are coming, it's almost always a signal to look beyond the immediate decades, the circumstances of the moment, to something that God will accomplish on a larger stage, in the fullness of time. It will have the same shape, the same pattern as that near-term historical event, It will echo the literal return of the exiles, even as it will echo an earlier story about the exodus from slavery from Pharaoh's Egypt. It will echo those events, but it will be far, far bigger. So much bigger that I suspect Jeremiah and his first audience had only the vaguest, haziest sense of what that might look like. As these words called their imagination to gaze beyond the far horizon. What they did understand, though, was that their God, the covenant keeper, was so committed to keeping covenant with his beloved human children that he would not only fulfill the covenant that he made with the children of Abraham, he would forge an entirely new covenant with his people and invite into that new covenant all the peoples of the world. A covenant, which is another word for a relationship, a connection that would be patterned on that one that the people broke, but at the same time, it would be something completely different, completely new, because that old covenant with its reciprocal terms and provisions had simply proven impossible for humans to keep. And what will be different about this new covenant? Covenant. Well, Jeremiah describes it. God's law, God's Torah won't be just an external abstraction. It won't just be a list of do's and don'ts. It will be an organic part of an intimate relationship written inside, written on our hearts. Following God, pleasing God, being part of His covenant people won't be primarily about doing certain things at all. It will spring organically from a vital and a meaningful personal connection to God, from God's presence inside us in a real way. We will obey, but we'll do it out of deep love and gratitude for the tender love that we experience so intimately and directly from God, which is especially vivid in what I consider the most remarkable verse in this passage. 
This new covenant God promises, in this new covenant, you won't even need to say, hey, know the Lord, because everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, God says. It'll be the most natural thing you could imagine. And this verb, to know, it is the most intimate and the most relational word in all of the Old Testament. That will be your connection to your Creator, your connection to the Maker of the cosmos. Not knowing stuff about God, not knowing God in the abstract or in the third person, but actually knowing God in the way that you know your best friend. And there is one massive move, one bold act on God's part that will usher in this new covenant, this new era of knowing God directly. God says, I will, in some permanent and decisive way that I have not done so up to this point, I will forgive. I will forgive the brokenness and rebellion of my human children, the sin that has separated us from that dark day in the garden. Jeremiah's new covenant, it turns out, is all about forgiveness. And that is a perfect segue from the final Sunday of this series on Jeremiah into our series in Lent, which begins next week on the topic of forgiveness, the currency of Jesus' kingdom, the center of the Christian gospel. Because with the benefit of hindsight that Jeremiah and his readers really didn't have, it is pretty hard to conclude that the event God is describing in this passage, the event on the far horizon is the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Which is why several New Testament authors like Luke and Paul pick up this phrase, new covenant, and they apply it directly to the new relationship of pure grace that God creates with all humanity, with each one of us in Jesus Christ. In fact, do you want to know a slightly different English translation of this phrase, new covenant? It's the phrase New Testament. It means the same thing. This passage in Jeremiah is where that title actually comes from. From that most unexpected moment when the exiles in Judah discovered what I would dare to say is the most important discovery that any person can ever make in their entire life, including you and me, that even when we fail God, God does not fail us. That God keeps covenant with us even when we don't keep covenant with Him. And the ultimate proof of that is the new covenant God makes with us, the covenant of pure grace in Jesus Christ. So whatever you have done to push God away, Whatever mistakes you've made, whoever you've hurt, however you've hurt yourself, however unworthy or far from God you feel this morning, know this, that God in Jesus Christ is the covenant keeper. 
And he is ready to bring you home from whatever exile you are in. To bring you home to him. To put his own law in your very heart so that you will know him. Know him. Whom to know will always turn your mourning into joy and set your feet dancing.